I'm Mark Frost, and you're listening to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. Hey, Ben, this is David Duchovny. Twin Peaks is over 30 years old. There's so much more to learn about Twin Peaks. I, we recommend you pick up our book, Twin Peaks Unwrap the Book, to find out even more about the show that you love. We have tons of great stuff. We have over 100 interviews. We have commentary from the community. We have us. We have some great photos that have never been seen by most folks. I think if you're a diehard Twin Peaks fan, you're going to absolutely love this book, and you will definitely learn something new. So pick it up at bluerosemag.com. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. I've got idea you take me for Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm Ben Durant, and beside me... As always, Brian Kazaska. The secret history of Twin Peaks is out. Is out in the wild. It's out in the wild. Finally. We, we Finally. We debated about whether we wanted to talk about the book today. It's been out for a week. And we've had it maybe a little bit longer than that. We've had it a little bit longer. We were very uh, blessed to be able to get uh, access to the book early. Yes. But I think we've decided we're going to allow everybody who hasn't had a chance to read it as fast as we have <laughs> to in, to read it. And that next week, we're going to uh, do our book review. Sounds good. Yeah. So that's very exciting, Ben. I'm very excited to talk about this book with you and hopefully we'll get stuff from the community you know yeah i've waited think. 25 years to get new stuff can wait another week to talk about it yeah I got to interview Felipe B., who won the Meet the David Lynch and Kyle McLaughlin at the Festival of Disruption Experience. Before I talk with Felipe, I want to talk a little bit about Omaze. Omaze democratizes the traditional auction-given model by offering everyone the chance to have a once-in-a-lifetime experience for as little as $10, driving new levels of awareness and raising more money for charities. And now let's talk to Felipe. Okay, so uh, how did you find out about this uh, opportunity to possibly win uh, a VIP to the Festival of Disruption and meet David Lynch and Kyle McLaughlin? Well, I saw uh, on Facebook, in David Lynch's Facebook, and also Kyle made a video to have a cup of coffee. I was actually craving this ticket so much I couldn't buy them when they started. When they started being sold. Yeah, they sold out. sold out. Yeah. How did you enter? Did you, did you purchase something to enter in to win? It was basically pure luck because all, all you had to do was uh, you could donate as little as $10 mm-hmm. up to much more. And honestly, <laughs> so I donated only 10 bucks. And wow. only one time, yeah. It was like very, very lucky because it was totally random. That's awesome. Yeah, I think I did the, the $25 for uh, like a signed Kyle McLaughlin card or something digital card that is awesome ten dollars got you pretty far i mean wow yeah yeah it was even like twenty dollars was was like recommended that is something else that's so cool and i saw a picture of you see they uh, uh, amaze contacted you and they were able to get you actually surprised that you won i mean how does that work out amaze called me saying that i was one of the finalists mm. i think they picked like 10 and um i was actually like the sixth because uh like five people couldn't couldn't actually go oh uh, for me, yeah. It was wow. like meant to be. Yeah, they told me to do like a Skype interview the next day, and then that's when they told me I won. Woo-hoo! 
This is like one of the lifetime experience. Yeah. <laughs> I met David. Um, that was the kickoff party, and that was a, a private party that was actually Friday night before the opening uh, of the festival. He said, "Oh, have a seat." <laughs> I was like, "Yes, same." Oh my God, me and David Lynch in the same sofa, uh, having a conversation. Uh, told him uh, it's an honor to meet him because I'm a huge fan of all his movies uh, and Twin Peaks. I told him I was in the middle of making my first short film, so he gave me some inspiration and advice. David Lynch himself told me, "Oh, we have to try transcendental meditation." I think I'm actually giving that a try. He always says, uh, "You always go deep like that to get the best ideas, write them down, and we work them out from then on." And it was a great party. John Malkovich was there as well, and also I met Rebecca De Rio. She is the singer in Mohan and Drive, formed that song uh, "Jorando." Yeah. To her a long time as well, and she told me how she met David and the whole process of working Mohan and Drive. And, had a few drinks together, so very exciting. Isn't that something? And then, yeah, during the festival, so I met Kimmy Robertson, the one mm. who plays Lucy. Yes. Think he talks a little, <laughs> the together. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, Joe Malkovich was staying in the same hotel, so I, I was having my breakfast in the cafe, and he was sitting right on the table next to me. <laughs> and then on Sunday, Kyle did the, the interview on stage with Laura Dern, and um, I met him right after his interview. We talked for a long time, too, actually, and we were having a good damn cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and then we just talked about his movies and Dune, Lou Velvet, Twinkie, like his favorite movie um, to act with Dune. He's very down to earth. So yeah. what was the festival like? I mean, there was a lot going on for the weekend. It was a great festival. Uh, so lucky I got a VIP ticket, actually. <laughs> so I had one of the 10 first rows in the theater. Oh, wow. And I, I love Angelo Badalamenti. He composes all the Lynch music. And yeah. it was great to see him performing live. Yeah, the whole festival was amazing. Uh, a real experience. Wow. I think that, that was the best weekend of this year for me. <laughs> well, it seems like once in a lifetime uh, chance that you got. I mean, I'm very happy for you. I thank you for your time and uh, and uh, good luck and uh, thank you. Oh, sure. Thanks, man. All proceeds from the Fellowship of Disruption campaign went to the David Lynch Foundation, which has helped bring the stress-reducing transcendental meditation techniques to more than 50,000 children and adults around the world since opening the doors in 2005. Thank you, Felipe, for coming on the show. And thank you, Amaze, for setting this all up. Festival of Disruption was, uh, was it October 8th through the 9th? How was that? Oh, man. I had an absolute blast. It was, it really was just a great time. Can you give us like a tour of what you did there? Yes, I can. I guess I'll start on Thursday night. Me and some friends went down to pick up our, our wristbands, I guess. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was just crazy. Uh, it was held at the 8th Hotel and Theater. And they had the big box office painted with uh, Twin Peaks, like red and the Chevron print. And it was just really cool. It yeah. made things feel really real with mm-hmm. Twin Peaks coming back. And seeing stuff like that in public is, I don't know, It's for me, it's just a shock uh, for someone who never thought Twin Peaks would be coming back. So, mm-hmm. so while we were kind of hanging out uh, in front of there, <laughs> John Malkovich walked by like in this <laughs> wow. full suit. And... And that was really cool. Um, 
it was just like, oh, there's, uh, there's John Malkovich. And then, you know, just standing around talking to friends, and this woman was walking by, and a beggar or homeless guy, you know, just tapped her on the shoulder, and like, in one fell swoop, she just pulls out this $20 bill, hands it to him, and keeps walking. And wow. I said to my friend, I was like, did you see that? And they're like, I know, I can't believe that's Debbie Harry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And and I was like, oh, that was Debbie Harry. I just was, you know, I was impressed at such a smooth move of just, you know, giving the guy a, uh, a 20. Yeah. <laughs> the next day, things kicked off around noon, and uh, they did a screening of The Elephant Man. But really, uh, I kind of hung out in the lobby and, and caught up with a lot of friends and did some chatter. And they also uh, had a bunch of new Twin Peaks merchandise. Did you buy anything? And so I would got a matchbook and, like, a patch. That's awesome. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Yeah. There was also, like, this, uh, you may have seen it on the auction site, but David Lynch painted, like, a set of dinner plate and they were really cool but they were like 1300 bucks so. oh my gosh wow <laughs> That's too much money <laughs> Dwayne Dunham you ran into oh yeah um, I ran into him on uh, I guess it was Saturday night before the music of Twin Peaks and that was great I, I kind of just saw him on the walking down the sidewalk and I was like Dwayne <laughs> we've talked many times over the years but we've never met in person and that was really, it was really cool just to shake that guy's hand. Because, that I mean, I, I look up to him so much uh, for all that he's done uh, in his career. And yeah. he, he just couldn't have been more nicer. But what a great podcast you did on the Brad Dukes uh, show uh, yes. recently with the Blue Velvet and, and uh, Dwayne Dunham. Dwayne Dunham. Uh, great show. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was really cool. I mean, for all the times I've talked to Dwayne, we've never really dug into Blue Velvet. And, I, I mean, most I had never heard most of all the stories he told mm. on that. So. Me too. That yeah. was really, really cool. Um, after the Elephant Man screening, Mel Brooks did sort of a, I guess, a talk. He just kind of talked about how the Elephant Man came about, and it, that was really fascinating. I, I think he's like 90 years old. Hmm. The whole time I was just kind of looking up there like, man, that must be cool to be 90 years old and have like 1,500 people hanging on every word that you have <laughs> to say. On uh, Saturday was Questlove did a DJ set in the, the lobby, and that was kind of cool just to see him up there doing his thing. He was actually walking around quite a bit, chatting with people and stuff, being really, really cool. So it cool, was wow. nice to you know, see somebody like that with that much visibility and exposure and be completely cool to, you know, talk to whoever comes up to him. Nice. Wow. And did you see uh, Robert Plant? Oh, yeah. That was awesome. Man, I mean, I, I am admittedly not the biggest Led Zeppelin fan, but I mean, I appreciate what they do. And to hear like Robert Plant sing, Dave, I'm going to leave you in uh, rock and roll and a uh, whole lot of love. I mean, that was unforgettable. I mean, I, I, I really had goosebumps during that performance. <laughs> really cool to see St. Vincent. She played Saturday, and I've seen her, I think, on every single tour, at least for every album she's done. Oh, wow. And it, it was really neat to kind of see her progress to this kind of a stage. Playing is like unbelievable. Like, and what she's yeah. doing while playing the guitar, 
mm. is very like blows my mind. It's very awesome. I mean, she almost seems like she could fit in Twin Peaks. I know she's not going to be, but yeah. she kind of fits that personality of some of those musicians. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like she'll be walking backwards and doing some weird <laughs> thing, but she's just wailing on that guitar and she's singing. She's like, yeah, amazing. Awesome. Day two, I was late. I didn't get there until later in the afternoon, so I missed the Debbie Harry speech. I was there in time for Blue Velvet Revisited. It's a new sort of documentary about the film. And it goes candy colored clown. Uh, a lot of times you need to be sitting, you know, very quietly, and then you start getting some ideas. I mean, it was really cool to see it, especially it was the U.S. premiere. I think about the last third of it, I kind of was getting restless because mm. it really was not a, a your traditional documentary. It was basically, you know, footage you know from the filming of Blue Velvet, which was incredible to see. It was more so just observations from Lynch about the creative process, and I think I maybe would have liked more just direct stories from behind sure. the scenes and how yeah. some of those scenes came together. Yeah. But I, I've got to say, if you're a Blue Velvet fan in the slightest, definitely check it out. It's worth uh, seeing. And you you better have gone to this part. This is the one I w- would want to go to the most, see Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern talk. Did yes. you get to see that? <laughs> yeah, so... I feel so dumb. I really wasn't paying attention to the schedule, and I slipped out. My friend was holding me a seat, and I slipped out to go get some coffee, and I thought it would be funny to get some cherry. They had these little cherry pies at the cafe next door. And so I thought I had, like, 30 minutes, and I was outside talking to one of my friends, you know, taking my time. And so I walk in, and, like, the lobby is just a ghost town, and I'm like, Uh-oh. Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern are already out talking. So I missed the first five minutes of it, but I did have coffee and cherry pie while well, there you go. was up there. <laughs> and how was that? How was that seeing them on stage? And they were they were talking mostly about Blue Velvet. Uh, it was unforgettable. I mean, always great to see Kyle mm-hmm. in person and and hear his voice. And especially with Laura Dern, it's such a rare occurrence to hear them kind of trade stories about how they first met David Lynch. My first meeting with him was uh, in an office in the Valley um, with Pam Rack at the time, the casting director, and guest, and um, we talked interestingly, then we ended up talking about meditation, we talked about, vaguely about the film, I didn't know anything. Um, and he was the only director to this day that I've ever met that sort of in the meeting said, you know, I don't need to have seen you. I've never seen you. I don't need to see you work. I'm looking for a feature. She's imitating you. But he really did, you know, he was looking for qualities or a sense of the person or something. I met him a lot at Universal in the bungalow way back. And I had been brought in from Seattle because the cast, I think one of the casting associates actually, um, the late Elizabeth Lustig, uh, auditioned me in a hotel room in Seattle where I read a couple scenes of John Tate. A couple scenes from David Come Do, and we actually brought the tape to David and Raphael, and they saw it and said, 
question and they were like what can you tell us about twin peaks and all kyle said was it's going to be amazing uh, so there you have it what was really neat was there was a lot of interesting characters kind of just mulling around i got to talk to riley lynch who was david's son and hmm. we were kind of talking about blue velvet revisited and he was remarking about how strange it was to see his dad hmm. so young because he never knew him at that age yeah isn't that something <laughs> and he was he was just as nice as can be i think he's got a part in Twin Peaks upcoming. And, uh, I mean, he was just so down-to-earth and so cool. Oh, yeah, and I also got to talk to Sabrina Sutherland. She is the producer of Twin Peaks Season 3. She was very nice and very uh, very tight-lipped. Not that I was crying for any mm. information, but <laughs> it was really, really neat to meet the person that I, I guess you could say is third in command with Twin Peaks coming up. Wow. And uh, that uh, was really cool. Me and my friends ran into Christabel and uh, Rebecca Del Rio, and they wow. they chatted us up for as long as we wanted. Kind of like a reunion in the way, I would say probably, I don't know, over two or three dozen people from the Twin Peaks Festival in Washington were there. And so it was really nice to see all those people somewhere else and not in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> I think everybody had fun. And, uh, of course, uh, the music of Twin Peaks shut down the whole thing. Mm. And um, I'm sure you guys saw it, but David Lynch came out and he thanked everybody for coming. And <laughs> he said, uh, Tell you some secret information on the new Twin Peaks. I think you all would be very interested in... Oh, no, we're out of time. <laughs> what a tease. Yeah, I mean, it, it was funny, but to be in a room with that many people hanging on, like, a sentence like that, mm. it, it really was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Keep the mystery alive. Oh. Yeah. The music of Twin Peaks, I, I, I'm not going to – I don't want to be critical of it, but um, I think it, it could have been produced maybe better or mm. sequenced. Um I mean, I loved the performances, and it was Christabel sang some songs, and oh, she did Just You, uh, the James song. Oh. And <laughs> that was awesome. Just Ferrera saying over the rainbow and falling. But what's 
struck me funny was um, Angelo didn't come out until after that. So it, I, I really would have liked to have heard Angelo play on Falling and mm. Just You mm. and some of those real classic Twin Peaks songs. Yeah. Um, but he did come out later and they did the Laura Palmer theme and Dance of the Dream Man. It was really just a dream come true to see him perform those songs. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. So Angela performed a little bit, and then they had like this this interpretive dance uh, choreography thing. And honestly, I, I would rather have had that time to have more of Angelo performing. Mm. Just me being really a picky and uh, meticulous fan and greedy, I guess, yeah. in a way. <laughs> totally. But, um the very last act was Rebecca Del Rio saying Jorando, and that was uh, really just a chill-inducing moment. Giorando, Giorando, Giorando. Oh. They're yeah. talking about doing this again next year. Is that something that you'd be interested in going to again? Yeah, I think so. I I, I did hear some chatter that basically this week or next they were going to start planning the next one. I, I believe I, I had heard that this festival had been, you know, taken a couple of years to develop and work mm. out. But, but really, I, I had a blast. I mean, it was it was a really great venue. The Ace Hotel Theater was really really beautiful i mean even during some of the performances i kind of caught myself just looking up at the ceiling and getting lost in all the the cool details and the, i guess the the carvings we are celebrating mark frost month and you actually have interviewed him for your book reflections or history of twin peaks and what was it like talking with mark frost wow it, it was quite an experience i mean i have had the pleasure and honor of interviewing him a handful of times because he just he made himself available for my book and he would actually you know go to bat for me and provide references for people who weren't sure if they wanted to participate mm. so his participation was paramount i always look back on that time just just kind of blown away and filled with gratitude because he was just so kind to me and it was incredible to you know have the co-creator of twin peaks on the phone and just have the freedom to ask him whatever i wanted mm. and and then try to build a narrative from there so i just always be grateful to mark as a person and then as an artist, I mean, that's just a completely other different bag because, uh, you know, I love Twin Peaks and I love a, some of the books he has written. So he's just an infinitely fascinating guy. Mm. Way back in the day on Twitter, I found Mark and every time I tweeted at him, he would tweet back at me, which <laughs> I was, I was like, I remember I was at lunch with my wife and I was like, Oh my God, Mark Frost just tweeted at me. That's awesome. <laughs> And uh, and from there, it just kind of grew. I was doing some interviews on my site, you know, in regards to Twin Peaks. And I think Mark was checking it out on his own accord. 
And I think he had actually sent out a few tweets saying, hey, Brad's website's really cool, something like that. Wow. And I remember he started following me one day. And so I just direct messaged him and said, hey, let's do something for my website. And I remember I tried to sort of just build the bridge and not bombard him with Twin Peaks and sort of maybe look more into his influences growing up and some of the stuff in regards to sports writing which he also does. And so I tried to pursue a relationship and build a bridge with him that just, you know, wasn't completely beating Twin Peaks over the head. Hmm. Um, (laughs) So, and getting him on uh, to the website opened up some doors uh, for other people I wanted to interview. So it was kind of just, you know, taking it one step at a time. And what do you think of him as a person? Like, I mean, having those interviews, yeah, what's the sense you get of him? He's just an incredibly smart guy. I mean, he reminds me a lot of a college professor, but he's also really versed in, you know, well-versed in pop culture and stuff that's coming out. Um, I mean, he can, he has such a depth of knowledge when it comes to, you know, literature and, and film and even music and sports. I mean, he's just a, there's a lot of different interesting facets to him. Mm. So I always kind of hoped that Mark would consider doing a, a Twin Peaks book. And I think even on Twitter, he had alluded to the fact that that's possible. I mean, he's never been one to say Twin Peaks is done or close the door or anything. So, you know, after all those years of hoping and wishing that would happen, it is, it's just incredible. You should absolutely check out a couple of his novels. The List of Seven, I would start there. I read that a few years ago, just loved it. And it really kind of led me into looking into Sherlock Holmes and stuff. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Mark's a terrific writer. Yeah, and I think about List of Seven, it definitely had some Twin Peaks elements that there was like the occult too. So it wasn't just like the detective. There was also this like mystery element of like supernatural occult kind of uh-huh. feel to it. That was really cool. You got to read it sometime. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's a sequel called The Six Messiahs, which is also really good. It's kind of, it, it picks up directly from uh, the, the List of Seven. I need to reread those. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Well, thank you, Brad. I really appreciate your time and talk a little bit about Mark and uh, where can people find you and get more information about you? Yeah, uh, I can be found on Twitter at Brad underscore D underscore and you can find links to my book Reflections and my podcast The Brad Dukes Show. If you want Mark Frost we got the word that uh, Brad Dukes, he's on Brad Dukes Show today Yeah, so after you listen to us go go to Brad Dukes Podcast Sure what are you sitting around for? We got places to go and people to see. Yeah, I think I better start studying medicine. Oh, why is that? Because I'm beginning to feel a bit like Dr. Watson. We have uh, Christian Hartleben. Welcome. Hey, Hello. Hey, Christian. So hey. we we got to meet you in person at the Great Southern. I think that was so cool. We just happened to go to the record store, and there you were, and uh, we hung out and had I think we had breakfast, and we yeah yeah it was a good time. Yes, we had several meals and uh, wonderful conversations. Uh, I don't mind saying that uh, going down there, part of my objective was definitely to meet you guys and uh, share in everything you've been doing with podcast. Cool. Very wow, cool. thank you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was, I think you're like one of the, other than Scott Ryan, you're one of the first people that just approached us and just started talking. It was yeah, great. Yeah, really cool. Yeah. It was really cool. We, David Bushman, and we, we ran into him yes, too. Yeah, yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. Christian, you've been a fan of Twin Peaks forever, it seems like, since the beginning. Can you share with us a little bit of your background with Twin Peaks? Well, yes, that's right. I was a sophomore at college at Princeton at the time, 
and I was a terrible student in chemistry, physics, and math, and I just uh, ended my first serious relationship after a year, and Twin Peaks was coming along, and it was the right thing at the right time to get me interested and move me on in my life a bit. Yeah, and this was 1990 this all took place. And before college, I had watched all of network television for the last decade, and I had seen everything that possible, and it was pretty pathetic. Um, (laughs) When Twin Peaks came on, my reaction just to every shot and every line in the pilot was like, that cannot be on television, and that cannot be on Mm. television. And uh, it was very transforming and very liberating. Very cool. I changed my major to art history and visual arts. Uh, because that was the closest I could get to studying film at uh, college. And uh, going to Film Society, like you had uh, uh, showed the uh, deal you mentioned on the podcast. And, uh, yeah, we, we um, had a very nice uh, Film Society, uh, lots of members, and I'm sure the economics of the whole thing collapsed a few years later with VCRs being everywhere. But at the time, it was still a vibrant kind of way, and, and the Twin Peaks was sort of a sidecar going on, and I had uh, recorded it, the pilot and all the episodes, and I duplicated them and passed them around and got a lot of people up to speed who wouldn't have been otherwise able to watch the show. Huh, that's cool. Now, you were involved with uh, alt-TV Twin Peaks. I was. I was. I, I read and posted a little bit while the show was on, while I was uh, at uh, university. But then after school, I, back at home, I... Stayed on the news group uh, until about 2004. I didn't get to have access to internet till probably 1995. I think that was my first thing, but I still don't think I. I remember going to the site, but I don't remember being an active member really doing stuff. And that was still several few years after Twin Peaks had gone off the air. It was definitely my lifeline. I mean, I was home with uh, depression and illness, and uh, I was on there every day trying to find something new to say and connecting mm. uh, people with resources and all that because we were the last outpost along with 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 uh, wrapped in plastic mm. at that point the, the, the whole circus had moved on nobody cared about us anymore but occasionally a lonesome fan would show up and we'd offering our frequently asked questions file and our little websites and everything. You mentioned uh, Wrapped in Plastic magazine. Did you did you contribute to that too? I think did you get some letters in, in that uh, in that magazine? I did get one letter in, which uh, it, it's rather thickly written, but I'm still pretty comfortable with a lot of the things that I was saying. It was inspired by the uh, dream theory that John Thorne and Craig Miller put forth, hmm. which I'm a proponent of, and uh, looking at the uh, Alcave Ring and the Blue Rose and how to understand those. Yeah, I love the research that you put into it. You know, you, you email us all the time. Like, oh, really, yeah. I think it's really dense research, but I love that the, the time that you put into this and, and the, your thoughts behind uh, a lot of these theories about the cave and the ring, and it's it's really cool. This month is Mark Frost Month, and I wanted you on, especially because to talk about Mark Frost as the reporter <laughs> in <laughs> Twin Peaks. Can you give some background about that? Sure. Well, I, I was aware that he had an on-camera uh, appearance as uh, the uh, TV news reporter at the scene of the fire of the mill, as reporter Cyril Pons, mm. last name spelled P-O-N-S. But I didn't know the name until recently when Mark and Frost and uh, someone were tweeting about it. And uh, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of 
looking at the derivation of names and possible associations and linguistics like that with Twin Peaks. So I, I say, well, what does Cyril mean? Mm. It turns out that it means Lord or Master. Hmm. And Pons um, sounds like pond, sounds like a body of water, granted, but uh, the pond is a structure in the brain which has to do with dreams and is implicated in sleep paralysis. So I learned from Wikipedia. Interesting. And if you put those together, and it suggests that he is uh, describing himself as the master of dreams. Hmm, that's cool. The lord of nightmares, even, if you want to go there. And then you can also, uh, I'll also throw in the idea that, because it sounds so much like Pond, that uh, a, a reporter of that type in a small town would be big fish in a little pond. Hmm. Russian goes. I like that. Yeah. But then, uh, because I'm bringing these things up on Facebook and looking around and stimulating other people to give me information, I learned something I would have never bothered to find out. You know about Mark Frost's interest with uh, Sherlock Holmes and similar sorts of, in that genre. Uh, but I didn't know there was a character, a very sensibly developed pastiche of Sherlock Holmes, uh, who, the character's name was Solar, S-O-L-A-R, Pons, P-O-N-S. Hmm. And uh, there are many book covers, and you can look at uh, him up online, but he must have been rather obscure because I never ran across August Erlich, the author, and these books when I used to crawl through these bookstores. For a time, apparently, he was rather well-known. So he might actually have been uh, something perhaps uh, in that vacation cabin up in upstate New York. There's dusty old volumes lying around and young Mark Frost to pick them up. And so uh, just to clarify, the one was about Sherlock Holmes and then and then you also had these other uh, books, these publication books about ponds? Yeah, it was fantasy fiction. It was fan fiction. Mm. It was, it was uh, just... Um, he, he, I think he contacted uh, Conan Doyle directly and said, can I write Sherlock Holmes stories? He was told no. He basically did, but he just changed the name. <laughs> and what do, do you know? What year these roughly? What time period these books came out? Uh, they, they, it was over a long period, and then someone else actually picked up after uh, August Erlich passed away. But it, it started while Conan Doyle was still alive. So I would say probably twenties, thirties, forties. I mean, it's 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 still clear that he's not um, not favored by anyone anymore. But but for a time available on the stands and it was good enough and it was popular we save one last mark frost question for this show this one's for you christian so uh, you played a reporter on in twin peaks Cyril Pons. Cyril Pons. Yeah. yeah i don't know if you know that. so in the 1920s 1930s there were these tribute sherlock Holmes books solar ponds I, we were wondering if maybe you got the last name from that character uh you're the first person who's ever picked up on that but yes that was a little bit of an homage i think i posted something about saying it was pawns with a d and mark frost responded to me i believe and 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 clarified that it was an n and i think i again posted again with with the d and it took it probably took me twice to realize oh he really means that is his last name p-o-n-s and you're arguing with the with the with the creator of, <laughs> of twin Peaks. he's like i know what i'm talking about i, I think because for so- i have held on to mistaken impressions for 25 years and i still have quite a few in my head that i haven't figured out yet <laughs> and the reporter was also in storyville where i think maybe it was deleted out 
out, but originally Mark Frost played both the reporter in Twin Peaks, and then he was going to be in the movie Storyville. And shared so, universes? Yes, sh- sh- shared universe. A nice, a nice observation for Frostober, which I'm on board with. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, somebody else, uh, who was I? I John, our, our, our buddy John. Who, John Bernardi emailed John Ber- me and says he likes Ma- Mark yes. Frost Month. He does. So but we, this is we, the last we, week of Mark Frost Month anyway. Yeah, so, so uh, maybe next year we will go with uh, Frostober. <laughs> Frostober. It struck me the other day that I may possibly love Twin Peaks fans more than I love Twin Peaks. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. At the same time, you, you seem to cause trouble. Recently we had... Trouble? <laughs> trouble. Re- recently we had uh, Mark from Deer Meadows Radio, and we were talking about how you like to uh, cause trouble and, <laughs> and basically tell us that we're, we're in a fight with each other here or something. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, it's, it, I could, I, there isn't enough room in Twitter to explain it all. It's much better to just stoke the energy a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it, right. uh, and it's beautiful because I, I see more and more of this inter-podcast communication, getting ideas, and, and encouraging each other, mm. uh, and and think about what we're building towards. The book is uh, is out series coming. Uh, just the fact that it will be rerun on Showtime mm. uh, that is bizarre, and you know how bizarre that is. It is bizarre. It's very, I mean, it was bizarre when Bravo took it over and, and re-aired Twin Peaks. It was kind of like, what that is going is weird, on? Yeah. But yeah, it is going to be strange to think that like now it's going to be on, on premium cable <laughs> after all these years to, to be watched. Yeah, elevated very much. So. Yeah, it's something else. Well, I think this is good. I think this, we'd love to have you back on again. I know you've got so many things that you could share with us. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's far too much. And you're in a position to figure out how to dole it out, and I very much appreciated how you've been able to share the things I've offered, and just your fellowship and all of this has been very helpful to me. Yeah, and I hope you'll come back on again and dive into some other stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. You bet. You bet. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. Thank you, Christian. Joel, do you want to talk about Mark Frost? His energy seems to have gone almost entirely into um, writing books, fiction and nonfiction. So, like in the past twenty years, that's really been where he's been active in the mm. publish in the in the book nonfiction, especially sports writing. Um, he wrote a book about golf, which is supposed to be really. It was turned good. into a movie. Uh, the greatest game ever played uh, is about. Okay, yeah. Uh, turned into a, a two thousand five sports film with. Uh, Bill Paxton, Shay LaBeouf. Did he write the screenplay? He did do that. His really his big thing after Twin Peaks was the writing, and the big thing he did within a couple of years was The List of Seven, which is like a supernatural thriller set in Victorian England, 
with um, Arthur Conan Doyle as the main character. Mm. And it name drops a bunch of theosophists, and he did an interview around there, which was a great resource for me on my um, videos uh, with, I want to say, the, the independent UK newspaper um, mm. called The Independent, I, I think. And that it, and uh, that's a great interview for kind of getting his ethos and vision and stuff. And actually, the best resource, I think, is the Minnesota television station that did a special. I began writing when I was five. Um, I was fascinated by the mechanics of the typewriter and the way that you could create words out of nothing. Um, so it was a sort of a magic process for me very early on. And I, by the time I was, I used to retype newspaper stories. I would just, I loved the way the words looked in the columns. So I would just try to recreate them. I, there was nothing sort of original going on. And then I thought, um, maybe I should try to write my own stories, these things that were kind of bouncing around in my head. So I started writing uh, novels at 11 and wrote, I think, three between the ages of 11 and 15. Um, I think it was a way of figuring out who I was at that age. Um, it's a fairly tall order. And then um, I reached the age of 15 and started writing plays um, because I found out that if you worked in the theater, you could meet girls. Um, and uh, that led me into acting and and directing and all the other things. I've I've sort of come back to writing now um, after all this time is really the the foundation of what it is that I want to do and how I see myself. Um, and I, I think it's it's just the touchstone that keeps me um, aware of what's going on inside me and who I am. Do you remember the first thing you wrote as a child? I remember the first novel, yeah. Um, what was it about? Well, it was it was um, drawn, I think, uh, in large part from uh, the Man from Uncle, um, and uh, with a liberal sprinkling of the Three Musketeers, and uh, it was extremely violent. That's mostly what I remember. I think I killed forty people in maybe ten pages. So you have returned to your childhood passion. Are you finding this particularly rewarding? Uh, enormously, yeah. And why? Well, it's the, um, number one, the sense of you're writing sentences um, to be read. You're not writing them so a studio executive can get a picture in his head of a building blowing up or a car wreck. Um, you're, you're crafting sentences again. You're, um, you're telling a story one brick at a time. And um, it's... Um, I think of it as the culmination of sort of everything I've done up to this point, and it may in fact be what I end up wanting to do from now on. Um, it's it's a great feeling to get up in the morning and know that that's your day, that you have, you're going to get those 2,000 words out of your head and onto the screen, and um, um, and that's, you can feel that you've done your day's work then. It doesn't involve having a lunch or or, um, or trying to sell somebody something. It's 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 right there in front of you. Um, and, that, and that feels like good, honest labor. It is, again, storytelling, and that seems so very important to you. Why? 
Um, I, I've thought about that a lot. I sometimes think it's just in my DNA code that I, I have a lot of stories in there. That I think that as we live, we kind of create a story about ourselves. I mean, that's how people conceptualize their lives and, and how they tell it to other people. Everybody has a story to tell, as you discover when, you, when people find out you're a writer. Everybody wants to tell you a story. Um, so, uh, in that sense, everybody's personal story about themselves is a metaphor for who they are. Um, and I suppose when you do it for a living, um, you're doing the same thing. You're just creating it in concrete form as opposed to some oral tradition. And um, I've always had a lot of stories and always been interested in the, the way stories play upon the imagination and, and the way they engage people. Um, so I th I, I've just, there's never been any question for me that that was going to pull me forward. Where do the stories come from? Hmm. Well, um, that's mysterious. And uh, that's a fascinating interview. He talks about like a near-death experience he had and um, really gives you a sense of the man. So, you know, so that's kind of his body of work after Twin Peaks. Um, now, before, the big thing he did was he was a lead writer on Hill Street Blues for several seasons. He's basically the Harley Payton of that show for, I think, seasons three through five or something. He was the one managing the, the story and writing a ton of, like, almost a, a majority of the scripts each season he actually would have his name directly on as well. Mm -hmm. And I've only seen the first two episodes he wrote of Hill Street Blues, the first three, because only one season was available online, and it's like 120 for the box set, mm. and it's not on Netflix, and kind of frustrating. But um, I would love to watch more of that show. I mean, that that was a classic show of the 80s, and I really liked what I saw. Like, I, I liked, just from watching two or three episodes, I liked the characters. I liked the kind of the atmosphere. And, you know, it's funny to go back and watch it now. It looks like sort of a, a product of its time. It's like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, definitely like an 80s cop show. But at the time, it was very sort of rough around the edges and edgy and um, or it was seen that way, sort of a more realistic depiction of, police life than mm. you would normally see on TV. So that was interesting. And I think we talked on a previous episode about how there's numerous things in those episodes that you can kind of see little roots of Twin Peaks in there, like a waiter who comes into the room and mm. keeps coming back and disturbing the people in it. And, and you know, because to a point where it's just comical, this very slow-moving old waiter, you know? So that's, funny. that's something. And then there was, it deals with themes of domestic abuse and sexual violence and stuff that obviously came to feature very prominently in Twin Peaks. And there was a tragedy in the first episode, which I think we already talked about, so I won't go too much into it, but the actress who was in it playing an abuse victim was then murdered by her boyfriend hmm. days later. Wow. Um, Dominique Dunn and there's a whole fascinating history just with that and the trial that happened the guy got off with I think maybe one or two years for murdering her Wow! and father was furious and he hired a hitman or he wanted to hire a hitman and the hitman told him you don't want to do this and he ended up not doing it and he admitted that later publicly because he's a famous writer Dominic Dunn hmm. um, he was her father so all this crazy stuff happened surrounding that first episode and I've always wondered if that had an impact on how he, you know, envisioned depicting some of those issues and subjects in Twin Peaks, which he's talked about a little bit um, in an interview I can't find anywhere, unfortunately. It was for a horror magazine, and it was taken offline. Um, and I, I communicated with the person who had published it and tried to see, but they never responded. Hmm. Um, they had, like, a copy of the, of the article or the interview. 
So that's too bad. But they've quoted it in a lot of um, the Andy Burns book quotes it and I think somebody else. And he also talks about it in an interview, talks about dealing with the issues of domestic violence in the show and kind of how he didn't even realize at the time sort of how much it affected people. But a lot of people have come up and talked to him about it afterwards and stuff. So mm. so it's interesting that you can trace that back to Hill Street Blues. Um, and obviously that's something a cop show is going to deal with regardless. But there's just interesting things about those episodes he wrote that kind of relate to that later on. Yeah. it's It seems yeah. clear that Mark Frost was really learned about how to work with an assembly cast and how to yeah. structure stories. And he yes. really took yeah, what definitely. he learned and he brought it to Twin Peaks. I mean, like, it seems like, yeah, it just makes so much sense that the... Yeah. I don't that think... That was it, a hothouse for yeah. him, I think. I don't think he would have been as, as good as probably a showrunner or producer if it wasn't right. for Hill Street Blues. Hmm. Yeah, he was, I think Stephen Bochco was really his mentor um, it, before Hill Street Blues even. Uh, he wrote for sort of stray episodes for various Botch, uh, Stephen Bochco shows, and then that was the one where he'd gone back to Minnesota for a while. I think, I think he'd written some plays, and then he came back and he did that. And then after Hill Street Blues, he wrote the screenplay for the movie The Believers, hmm. which was a uh, based on a novel a horror novel and um, it deals with like voodoo and uh, you know in a very <laughs> sort of genre way like a, it's not a serious look at uh, actually you know what I, I, I'll stand a little bit corrected in the film it's actually more Santeria I think and they talk about how it's not you know all oh, these people are sort of perverting it and this isn't the real religion as it's supposed to be practiced so they do kind of, they do kind of acknowledge that it's not mm. just completely a Hollywoodization well I mean it is but you know right. They kind of they kind of note, okay, this isn't like the real religion we're representing. But the interesting thing to me about that film was that the parents it's it involves these parents like sacrificing their children for this sort of occult thing, which obviously again, you know, relates to, to Twin Peaks later on and this sort of idea of otherworldly possession where people's bodies are taken over and there's a character who's like dancing Hmm. In a like he hears the music and he starts shuddering and his eyes kind of roll back and he dances in the middle of the ball and all of these sort of like wealthy um, New Yorkers are standing watching and they all start to sway and stuff because they're into it. So that obviously, you know, Leland dancing on the Hmm. dance floor, being overcome by the music is very reminiscent of that. It's just interesting to go back and actually look at his other work because we can all look at Lynch's films and see, okay, Lynch brought this, that, the other thing, but then there's a bunch of stuff that Frost brings to it as well. Definitely. Do you need Mark Frost to make 2017 Twin Peaks? Well, I mean, it's a tricky question to answer because I think Firewalk with me is absolutely essential and kind of the heart of Twin Peaks, and he didn't participate in that directly. But at the same time, that film is rooted in decisions that he and Lynch had made earlier. So I'll put it this way. You can't, it's impossible to have a Twin Peaks going forward in which, which doesn't owe some sort of debt to both Lynch and Frost, mm. because you know, and even to a lesser extent, you know, Peyton Engels, all those people, because they all participate, but particularly Lynch and Frost, they really set the template, and any continuation is going to evolve. Now, in terms of whether he actually needs to be at the table, involved, etc., I think it's I think it's all for the best that this new incarnation has both of them there present, because what we're going to get is going to be a very interesting distillation of whatever that Lynch-Frost chemistry is, because we've only seen it once, really, which is the pilot. Hmm. Maybe to a lesser extent, the next two episodes, where they both get co-writing credit, although Hmm. I suspect that Frost had more to do with those screenplays 
don't, you know, mm. hit me down on that. I got no proof. <laughs> it's just uh, <laughs> not, and not to take Lynch's credit away. Obviously, they collaborated in some sense. He got credit on it. But the pilot really feels the most collaborative in terms of this is Lynch, this is Frost. They're sitting down together. They're writing this together mm. at the same time, bringing their stuff and meeting. And, you know, they say, what do they say? Oh, we throw our ideas up to the ceiling and they meet halfway <laughs> or something like yeah. that. I think that's the only episode where that's really happening. And I think after that, you always have one or the other at the helm. I think if Lynch isn't directing, Frost is basically in charge. Mm. And once Lynch directs, he throws increasingly with every episode. Pilot, he doesn't change that much. There's some little things here and there that get changed. But every episode after that, it's like more and more stuff that isn't in the script is on screen until you get to the finale. And it's like half the entire thing wasn't even in the script. Mm. At that point, they're like, it's really, you know, that's, that's Lynch taking control of it. And mm. then when he's not around, he's not a showrunner by, you know, temperament. So Frost is going to be the one always calling the shots with those episodes. So you get this tug of war between them, which ends up being really beneficial because you have this fascinating show that's got mm. contradictory strains in it and it's trying to reconcile them. And it's struggling to do that. It's struggling to be totally different things. And I've said this a million times, but if you look at their quotes on it, it just gets over and over again. It gets reinforced that for Lynch, this is a specific tragic story against which all these other stories unfold. But there's one event, which is the murder of Laura Palmer, that's always there in the background. And that touches everything and that mm. impacts everything. And that's the center of the story. And then for Frost, it's no, no, this is just, this is all about the town. This is a mm. universe we can explore endlessly. And that's sure, that's a great starting point, but we don't want to get trapped in that. Um, and later he said, well, actually, you know, David was right. We should have kept the mystery going. That mm. was, But at the time, the way he looked at it and the way you can see it in, in how the show is, when he's kind of at the helm, is it's this idea of this whole town um, that just you could go off in one corner and have a whole story right there and then another one and then, mm. you know, another area and have another whole story. And it, it doesn't all have to tie into one overarching plot. It can go on. And that's a very TV conceptual way to think because – on any show like Hill Street Blues, you have the basic premise, you know, this police station with all these people who work on the police force, Twin Peaks, you have a town, a small mm. town, so everyone kind of knows each other or mostly does. And then you go from there and you can do any story. You know, season five doesn't have to be still carrying a story from season one. That's just not how it works. Mm. But Lynch came to it from film. And a film, you know, as experimental as Lynch likes to get, as much as he likes to pivot off into weird little avenues. Film has an overarching frame, Same, certainly with a painting, and he was a painter first. A painting has the whole picture. There's a completeness to it. And it can be, there can be this element that you can't control that's a mystery that goes on forever, that's kind of wild and beyond the painting, but it's held somehow within this frame. And I think that's how he saw Twin, how Lynch saw Twin Peaks. Mm. And I think that's what Finale is all about, where he brings back all the stuff that was forgotten. I think that's what Firewalk with Me is about, where he goes back to the beginning of the story. I think that's what the Log Lady intros are about, where you have her appearing before every episode, like as almost like a stamp. Like it's like putting a stamp on something. Mm. Or maybe you could say his brand on cattle that's running away from him, <laughs> you know? Wait, get back here, episode 19. You're, you're mine too, you know? That's awesome. And that's kind of what the Log Lady does. So I like that. Yeah. that's kind yeah, of his vision, whereas Frost, I think, is much more kind of adventurous and willing to keep pushing it in these kind of um, directions, some of which work better than others. You know, he, he keeps it alive in that way. I think Lynch loved the idea of an ongoing TV story, but it seems like he didn't really have 
any method in place to produce that. So it kind of fell on Frost and the others to make that a reality. Mm. That's just my perception. Yeah. But remember, you can email us. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on, fi- on Twitter, Twin Peaks Unwrapped on all those, and then you can email us at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. And um, I want to say so much, I mean, like, I feel like I, I feel like PBS or something that's like, we need to take a moment to really uh, ask that you go to iTunes and give us those five stars, give us that review. If you've liked at least one of our shows that we've done, you gotta go to iTunes yes. and say that and tell people that, hey, this is a great show, give us those five stars. I mean, it means so much to us. Definitely, I, I agree. Like, we, we can hit the top 50. I know we can. Right. I know we can. I feel it in my bones. By season three, we could be there. We want to be reading your review on our next show. So keep those reviews, those comments coming, and I guess we're out of here. Kyle McLaughlin here, and I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. Could be a new shirt, a catnap in your office chair, or this. The chance to join me in L.A. for a, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. To support a great cause, I'm teaming up with Omaze to invite you and a guest to have coffee with me at David Lynch's Festival of Disruption. Have it with cream, sugar, or black as midnight on a moonless night. It'll be a chance for us to converse about anything and everything. Sex in the city, Portlandia, Dune as told through emojis. Basically a chance for you to see that I'm actually nothing like Agent Dale Cooper in real life. Excuse me. Siri, it's 8 a.m. September 6th, recording my Omaze video. Remind me to investigate ways I'm actually nothing like Agent Dale Cooper in real life. You'll also get VIP passes to the entire weekend of music, art, films, talks, and you'll even meet David Lynch at the official kickoff party. Click the link or go to omaze.com forward slash Kyle to enter. It's reasonably priced, $10 or more, and every entry supports the David Lynch Foundation. Of course, I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. So enter now. And let's find out.